This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so back in the day, back in the day I think means like before the 90s. Um, back in the day, there was an old Bob Newhart skit where he plays a therapist by the name of, of Dr. Schweitzer. Anybody seen that one? No? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you about it. So a woman comes in for an appointment with Dr. Schweitzer, and, and she's afraid. She has this terrifying fear of being buried alive. Anybody here have that fear? No? Okay, but you got a fear, don't you? So she was afraid of being buried alive. And so Dr. Schweitzer starts asking, has, has anyone ever tried to do this to you? Like, did you find yourself waking up in a coffin underground one day? She's like, no, no, but I panic just thinking about it. It's like I panic when I'm in a tunnel. I panic when I'm in an elevator. He thinks about it for a moment. He says, okay. I got two words that I want you to incorporate into your life, just two words. And she gets out her notebook. She's like, should I write this down? And he goes, you, you can, but I, I find that most people can remember this. It's, after all, just, just two words. And he says, you ready? And she's, yeah. Stop it! That was the session. It's over. And you know, when Julie read the passage this morning, it kind of felt like that's exactly what Jesus was saying, wasn't it? Are, are you afraid? Are you, are you scared? Stop it! Do not fear. Do not be afraid. You know, this is, this is one of the most common commands that we find in Scripture over a hundred times in various forms. And to be honest, by itself, it's not very loving, is it? It doesn't sound very Jesus-y, and it's certainly not very helpful, at least by itself. But here's the thing. We, we're all afraid of something, aren't we? We have so many fears that the American Psychiatric Association uh, had to create classifications of fears. They got they have five classifications, five types of phobias, and here, here's what they are. Uh, one is, is a fear of uh, animals. It's a type of fear of animals. And so, uh, ophidiophobia. You know what that one is? Anybody want to guess what that one is? A fear of snakes. It's a fear of snakes. Anybody got a fear of snakes? You're braver than me. Another one, we got natural and environmental fear. So fear. So acrophobia. Acrophobia. Not arachnophobia, but arachophobia. You know what that one is? Fear of heights. Fear of heights. Good one, Jason. Next one, uh, it's an injury type of fear. Onyxophobia. You know what that one is? Fear of losing your toenails. There's a name for that. Then there are situational fears like claustrophobia. Claustrophobia is a fear of tight spaces. Last one is the other category. They're like, I don't know, these things don't fit, but they need to own box. Other, uh, cholerophobia. Yes! How did you know that one? Well, then, see, I thought I was simply naming my fears. Those are my five. Apparently, three of the five are also Jason's. We have a lot more in common than I realized. But me, like, I'm terrified of snakes. If you hear a scream on a Monday, that's me running in the forest preserve, and I saw a little snake that's about that big, smaller than an earthworm. I'm screaming. I am scared of heights, and I've got some farm stories that I am too afraid to share. I'm afraid of losing my toenails. That was one of my biggest fears about running a marathon. They turned black as could be, but they did not fall off. I'm afraid of being trapped, and I'm afraid of being clowns, so do not invite me to the circus. I will not go. And so like Jason and I, I'm speaking on your behalf here. We don't find Dr. Schweitzer very helpful when he says, stop it. And even Jesus, when he says, do not fear, I don't feel that's very loving. 
And yet what we begin to see as we spend more time with God in his word is that God rarely, if ever, provides a command without context, without calling out the, the object of our fear. He, he knows what it is that we're afraid of. It's sort of the, the what of our fear, what we need not be afraid of. But he not only gives context, he rarely gives a command without some form of promise or reason, the, the why of our fear, why we need not fear. We see this, for example, in the opening of the book of Joshua, where God says to Joshua, as he's about to lead the people of of Israel into the land of Canaan, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. But he didn't stop there, does he? No, he follows his command with a promise. He says, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's telling his people, like, You don't need to fear whatever it is you're going to face when you cross that river into the land that I've promised you because I'm gonna be with you. God's saying like, I've got you. One of the things I loved about VBS as I was writing my sermon is the kids sang a song about that very thing. Um, I'm not going to sing it, I'm just gonna say it, but it was do not fear for I am with you. Luke, you wanna get back up and do the motions? No, you weren't even paying attention. You got to pay attention. I might call on you. Do not fear, for I am with you. And Jesus does the same thing here. Having just warned his disciples of the suffering and persecution that they're going to face as he sends them out, he says, have no fear. Do not fear. But this command is not without context of what they need not fear, and it's not without a reason why they need not fear. But did you notice he also says what to fear? He's helping them overcome their fear of others by redirecting that fear to the proper place. Don't fear that, fear this. And my prayer is that the words of Jesus would do the very same thing for us this morning in helping us in overcoming our fear. So if you haven't already, let's take out our Bibles to the New Testament book of Matthew. We're gonna be picking up in the last half of chapter 10 and just kind of recap here. We began the summer, if you remember, looking at this collection of stories Matthew tells in chapters eight and nine. Stories of signs and wonders that Jesus performed, healing the sick, casting out demons, he even calmed a storm. Stories that give us a glimpse into the restorative and healing nature of this coming kingdom. Glimpses into the authority that Jesus has as king in this kingdom and a glimpse into those who are welcomed into this kingdom. And he follows this collection of stories of Jesus with a related discourse of teaching from Jesus, the the second discourse known as the the mission discourse. The first uh, that we looked at a couple of years ago was the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, this then in some sense being the Sermon on Mission in chapter 10, as he prepares to send his disciples out to the people of Israel, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. But not just by saying it with their words, but by showing it with their actions, sending them out with his authority to do everything that he had just done, making this kingdom become more visible by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons. Like, that would be pretty awesome to see, wouldn't it? If that's coming to the Allstate Arena, if that's coming to the United Center, like, you want a ticket for that, don't you? So you, you would think that people would be excited, right, welcoming them into the towns, But that wasn't the case. Many were threatened by this king. 
They were threatened by the coming of his kingdom because it, it disrupted their lives. It disrupted their world. It disrupted their sense of comfort and security. It was disrupting their, their way of living, a way of living that differed from the way of Jesus. And, you know, so there's been very little confrontation up to this point, has there? A couple minor skirmishes with the Pharisees there in chapter 9, but, but Jesus knows this is all about to change. Things are going to start escalating and quickly. And so he warns them of how they will be hated for my name's sake. Hated not only by their own people, the people of Israel, but by their own families even. They'll be hated, they'll be arrested for proclaiming the arrival of the king and his kingdom. They will be beaten for performing signs and wonders in his name. They may even be delivered over to death because of their allegiance to King Jesus. But he also makes it clear here in verse 24 that this is exactly what it means to be his follower, to be his disciple, to be his servant. And that this is what it means to be formed into his image, to grow, to be like him. And then he warns them in verse 25 saying, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, um, a name here uh, used in reference to Satan, that kind of uh, plays on the name of the Canaanite god Baal that we heard about back in our Syrian in Hosea, a name that actually literally translates master or lord of this house. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? See, people knew there was a supernatural power behind these signs and wonders that Jesus was performing. And they attributed it to a supernatural source. But rather than attributing it to God, they attributed it to Satan. To the point that a, a little bit later in chapter 12, a Pharisee, he's gonna say, it's by Beelzebul, that the prince of demons, that Jesus casts out demons. And what he's saying is that if they, if they thought of him to be of Satan, the same would be true of his followers. Viewing them not as his disciples, but as his demons performing the same supernatural signs and wonders by that same supernatural demonic source, they would say. And Jesus here, he, he puts a massive warning label on his invitation to follow him, doesn't it? A massive warning label, not in, not in tiny two-point font on the backside where you can't read it, not in some legalese where you had to have gone to law school to be able to understand it. No, it is in big, bold letters right there on the front. You can't miss it. And so imagine for a moment what the, what the disciples must be feeling right now. Like, I, I gotta think they're wondering if maybe they made a mistake, if maybe we should rethink this whole following Jesus thing, if maybe we should go back to fishing because you know what? The fish ain't trying to kill us. We smell bad, we work long hours, but our lives aren't in danger all that much. So how do you think Jesus follows this warning? He follows it with a command. He says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of those who are gonna hate you, those who are going to lie about you, those who are gonna assume the worst about you. Have no fear of those who may have you arrested and beaten. Have no fear of those who may even have you put to death. Have no fear of them. It's as though Jesus said, stop it. And if he stopped right there, he'd be no better than Dr. Schweitzer. It'd be like, uh, it would be like, you remember that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know what scene I'm talking about now too, don't you? It'd be like lowering me into a pit of snakes and whispering in my ear, 
Have no fear of them. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Be like, um, who do I want to pick on? Hey, Leah. Come here. Come here. I, come here. Like, uh, I want you to come say some things in front of the entire congregation. Have no fear of them. They're not going to bite. It's not very helpful, is it? Right, you notice how when you call attention to the one thing you fear, it doesn't relieve your fear. It just makes you fear it even more. And that's kind of what it feels like is going on here. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? No, he kept on going. He not only told them what they need to fear, or in this case, who they need not fear, but he goes on to tell them why they need not fear. He, he gives them a reason why they don't need to fear them, the why behind the what. And so look with me here, verse 26 and 27. Jesus says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. This kingdom was becoming even more and more visible as the apostles, these sent ones, sent by Jesus, sent out with his authority, they were invited to participate in, in revealing this kingdom by performing the exact same signs and wonders that Jesus had. So that people could see the restorative healing aspect of the kingdom that had come. He invited them to participate in revealing the kingdom, but also in making its king known by proclaiming his words, proclaiming his way, and then inviting others into this kingdom. And when we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, just as Jesus taught us to pray, that is exactly what we are praying for, isn't it? We are praying for the courage to participate in this very same mission of revealing the kingdom and making the king known and welcoming others into the kingdom, amen? We are invited into this mission of doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God. Those things that the prophet Micah says the Lord requires of us. That is our mission. And the way we word that here is that we, we want to help people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. Right? That's our mission. We want to help people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. That is our mission. And our method, the way we go about carrying this out, is first to point people to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. That's how we make him known. Right? We are to be people known by our what? Love. We point people to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. That's how we make him known. But secondly, we are formed into the image of Jesus by faithfully following the way of Jesus. That is how we grow to be more like Jesus. I'm like, that sounds great on Sunday morning, doesn't it? Heads nodding, amen, here we go, yes. You were amen and in your heart, I could hear you. That courage starts to fade on Sunday evening when we're having dinner with our friends and family, doesn't it? And it fades even more Monday morning when we get to work. And by Saturday afternoon, there's not much left. We're less vocal in sharing his words, and we're less visible in living out his way. Because if we're honest, we're afraid. We're afraid of what others might think of you, afraid of what others might say to you, afraid of what others might do to you. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're afraid of saying it the, the wrong way so we don't say anything. And when we do say, we're afraid of offending others. And most of all, I think we're afraid of being rejected by others, aren't we? 
we're afraid of being rejected by others because we are faithfully following the way of Jesus, or at least trying to. And yet Jesus says to us, just as he said to his disciples, have no fear of them. Have no fear of what might happen to you. Have no fear of how they might treat you. And he says in verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. I wrote in my notes, huh? Jesus does that every now and again, doesn't he? You're reading along, yep, yep, I'm with you, I'm with you. What? It's, like, it's kind of like what Jesus said, guys, what's the worst that can happen? They kill you? How bad's that? Sort of like um, going out for sushi and your friend says, I think you should try the fugu. That's puffer fish, right? I think you should try the puffer fish. What's the worst that can happen? You die if the chef prepared it wrong? Because like the toxins in that fish are like a thousand times more deadly than cyanide. Apparently it is either incredible or your deathbed right there in the restaurant. It's like, it's like the only animal that can kill you after you have killed it. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And that is exactly what ended up happening. You know, other than Judas who took his own life, uh, church tradition holds that 10 of the 11 apostles were in fact delivered over to death. John was delivered over to an island. James, he was executed by Herod's grandson, story we read in Acts 12. Peter, uh, he was beheaded. Uh, Thomas was killed with a spear in India. Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he was executed by an Ethiopian king right there at the altar of a church. We keep on going. Stephen, a deacon in the early church, he was, he was stoned to death by a mob led by a guy by the name of Saul in Acts 7, who later, as Paul, was crucified upside down for his faith. What else would you expect from following the suffering servant, though? He told him right here what to expect. That's what we should expect. As Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our own cross just as he did every single day, every step of the way, not once laying it down, not following him down, in, down an easy path through a wide gate, but down a very difficult path through a very narrow gate. Suffering then, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Not spiritual gifts, not speaking in tongues, not church attendance or how much you give, suffering. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Going so far as to say that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is the invitation from Jesus, to die. Because the way of Jesus is a way that leads to death. And yet it is the only way that leads to life. Now hear me, we, you may never experience suffering to the extent that the early church did in the first 300 years. I doubt we do, and I am grateful for that. We may not experience persecution the way the church faces today in other parts of the world. None of us have probably ever been arrested for having a, a box of Bibles in our car, a story that our, our partners Tom and Michelle told when they were here a few weeks ago. But you may very well be maligned for your faith. You may very well be mocked for your way of living. You may very well be hated for your beliefs and called a bigot and intolerant. 
because the way of Jesus remains a way of death for us. And that we die to ourselves in order to live for Christ, amen? We die to ourselves in order to live for Christ. And that means we are going to face loss in this life. We're gonna lose those things that we most fear losing, things like our reputation and status. We fear losing them for following Jesus. We fear losing friends and relationships. We fear losing security and comfort, and we will fight for that. We fear losing our health and well-being. We fear losing power and privilege. And because we fear the loss of those things, we fear those who we think might take those things from us, don't we? That's who we've deemed to be our enemy. And when we are driven by a fear of others, rooted in a fear of loss, that fear, it overwhelms us, it controls us, it consumes us, and it prevents us from participating in the mission Jesus has invited us into, failing to point others to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. It prevents us from faithfully following the way of Jesus. It prevents us from doing justice. It prevents us from loving kindness, and it prevents us from walking humbly with God, doesn't it? And that's why Jesus says here, have no fear of them. Have no fear of what they might think of you, what they might say to you, what they might do to you. Have no fear of those who who can kill you but cannot kill the soul. Overcoming that fear, overcoming that fear of loss by redirecting that fear. He says, do not fear them, rather fear him. Fear God. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I wrote, huh, in my notes again. Can we be honest? It it sounds a little threatening, doesn't it? It sounds a little threatening. It 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 sounds like an abuse of power that someone in authority over you might say. Don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of me. Do this or else. It's got that ring to it, doesn't it? But, but here, here's the thing, just kind of a, a general uh, tangent on reading our Bible. When we come to a verse and we take that verse out of its context and it's a verse that makes us go, hmm, you write, huh, in your margins, we need to put that verse back in its context. We need to put it back in the context of the passage that it's in, of the book that it's in, and within this God's grand story of redemption that it fits in. We need to put it back in its context. What do you think Jesus is actually doing in this passage? He's not trying to threaten them. He's not threatening them so they would, they'll cower in fear, afraid of, of what God might do if they don't obey. No, he's encouraging them, isn't he? He's encouraging them to, to stand in awe, amazed at who God is, that he is sovereign and powerful and faithful, that he holds all things in his hands. Amazed at who God is and amazed at at what God might do in and through their obedience, their participation in this mission. To the point that the words of Jesus here, they have an almost proverbial feel to them. Kind of like in Proverbs 29, verse 25, where it says, the fear of man lays a snare. Fear traps us, it enslaves us, it controls us. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, free, free to live for God, knowing 
you are loved, knowing you are cared for by God. Like here's a, if you take one thing and nothing else away from this morning, I want it to be this. You are loved by God. I don't care if you forget everything else I said. You are loved by God. Can you say, I am loved by God with me? I am loved by God. Georgie does that to us all the time when he's leading worship. When he, how he loves us. Oh, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he does the, how he loves me. And then it just, it hits you, doesn't it? Can you say it one more time with me? I am loved by God. But not just you, us. Can we say it? We are loved by God. We are loved by God. Somebody out there is wondering, how does he know that? Let me tell you how I know that. I know it because Jesus says so. Jesus loves me this. I know for the Bible tells me so. What he's going to say here next is that we are both intimately known by God and infinitely valued by God. That's how we know we are loved. Look at what he says here in verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. It, um, it's nearly impossible to count the hairs on your head. Um, it is becoming a bit more possible with my head. Some of you as well. I'm not going to call out names. You know who you are. But man, nothing is impossible for God, is it? Nothing's impossible for the one who created you, forming your inward parts, knitting you together in your mother's womb. Nothing is impossible for the one who knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your fears. And yet we try and hide from him. He knows your fears. You are so intimately known by God. And you are also infinitely valued by God. The author of all creation, down to the smallest creature. He, he values everything and everyone in his very good creation, even the seemingly insignificant aspects of, of creation, even the seemingly insignificant creatures like, like a sparrow, something that we give next to no value to. And, and his point here, it's not to devalue the sparrow, but to show how much God values the sparrow which God said was good, and to show how much more God values you, how much more he values us as his people, as his children, created in his image, which God said was not just good, but what? Very good. And just as a sparrow, just as with that sparrow, not one of his children will fall to the ground apart from the heavenly father, apart from his presence apart from his love and apart from the care of the one who intimately knows you and infinitely values you. And so in this passage, in this sermon on mission, this, this mission discourse, what Jesus is doing is reminding them and reminding us of the danger of living in fear of others, of what they might think about you, what they might say to you, what they might do to you. He's reminding of them that, that fear and then releasing them of that fear by redirecting that fear to the one who is holy and righteous and worthy of being feared and reminding them that no matter what might happen to you, 
no matter what that person might think of you, say to you, or do to you, God's got you. Amen? God's got you. No matter if they mock you or reject you for your faith, God's got you. No matter if you are threatened or beaten or arrested, God's got you. Even if they kill you, God's got you because God's got the final say, doesn't he? God's got the final say. About now you're asking again, how do you know that to be true? Well, because when Jesus was threatened, when he was arrested, when he was beaten for declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand, and when he fell to the ground as he carried his cross, none of it was apart from the Father, was it? And when they killed Jesus, nailing him to a cross, hanging under a sign that read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, these people hoping that this disruption of the last few years would go away, death was swallowed up in victory, just as the prophet Isaiah said, because God has the final say as Jesus defeated death and he rose from the grave. And so do not live in fear of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, stand in awe of the one who has the power to resurrect the dead and to restore all of creation. That is power. Knowing, knowing that if you have been united with Christ in a life like his and in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He is the true Lord of this house. He is the one and only king of this kingdom. And he closes in verse 32, saying, so everyone who acknowledges me before others, not only with the words you say, but the way you live, faithfully following the way of Jesus and obedience to the words of Jesus. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father, presented in Christ as holy and righteous, white and pure as snow, but but whoever denies me before others, allowing that fear of what others might think and say and do to prevent you from pointing people to Jesus, from loving them like Jesus, from faithfully following the way of Jesus, from doing justice, from loving kindness and walking not just with God, but walking humbly with God. Whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Bonhoeffer goes on to write that if we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of others, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. We, we're gonna be afraid. And I'm, there's a whole bunch of things to be afraid of. I'm not afraid of snakes because of my faith in Jesus. That was just for fun to get us going. We needed a laugh. I'm talking about those moments where we are afraid because of our faith, where we're afraid to speak up, where we're afraid to speak out, where we're afraid to live the way that Christ has called us to live and doing that in front of others. The only way we will ever overcome that fear of what others think and say and do is by redirecting that fear to the one who's worthy of being feared. Remembering that you are loved by God that you are intimately known and infinitely valued by God. He's got you. He's got the final say. The other day, Rebecca Griffith was sharing, uh, I think this was at The Way the other night. She was saying a prayer that she prays over her boys at night. And if she forgets, they bring her into the bedroom. That's what happens when you do prayer with your kids every night. They don't let you forget. She asked them three questions and, and made a statement. And I'm going to botch this because I didn't write it down. 
But she starts off saying, look, look at me. And she says, you know I love you, right? Yes, mom. You know God loves you even more, right? Yes, mom. Even when you fail and even when you fall, yes, mom. And then she ends saying, now rest in that. I'm gonna borrow my sister's words. You know how much I love you as your pastor? You know how much the people of this church love you? Yeah? Kind of got a little head nod. You know, I think they always like me. Do you know how much God loves you? It is infinitely and exponentially more than that. Do you know that God loves you even when you fail and even when you fall, when you stumble, when you've walked away? Every time you come back, the Father is there to welcome you with open arms, not reluctantly, but running out to you. You know that? Yeah? I want you to rest in that this morning, this day, and this week. So I want to close with a question. Do you believe anything that I've just said this morning? Do you believe anything that Jesus has said this morning? Do you, do you believe that you are loved by God? Do you believe that you are forgiven by the blood of Christ? Do you believe that you are accepted in Christ? Do you believe that God's got you no matter what happens to you? And do you believe that God's got the final say? Because he's already written the final chapter of this story. Do you believe that? Because to believe in that, to believe in who God is and what he has done and what he has promised to do, and to live in light of that, that is what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. That is what it means to fear God, knowing, as it says in Proverbs 14, that it is in the fear of the Lord where we find strong confidence. It is where his children have refuge because the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and a river of love. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.